rewind because I'm a fucking mess. This is not a good. And hello, and welcome back to another episode and another week of Murders a Drag with me, Aura Van Dank. I think you guys know the drill now with my hat and my hair and my hiding my not having eyebrows to trick you into watching this. And then five seconds in, I reveal that I don't have any eyebrows and you're stuck with me. Uh, you're actually not, so please don't stop listening, because it's going to get good, I promise. I've had one of the craziest weeks uh, ever this week. I sent in a little application online for a wild TV game show that I was just like, yeah, let's see what happens. Um, and then I got a call back, and then I got another call back, and then another one. So I'm super excited, and I hope that actually works out. And if it does, it'll be one of the most wildestest things that I've ever done in my entire life. And that was a really exciting thing to happen this week. I had like three different calls. It was super exciting. And I was like, oh my goodness. It was great. Um, I gave them a good old two in the Aura Van Dank and two in the Aura Van Dank. One in the Aura Van Dank. Two in the Aura Van Dank. How does that work? Anyway, I did that for them and they loved it. They loved me and I'm hoping for the best. Additionally... I was then offered an impromptu pop-up number where I was doing the interview at this bar, um, and my wig fell off for my um, impromptu debut performance, so that was great. But I was still graciously accepted with open arms, because even God has lost a wig or two, to quote Babs Money. It was crazy to be back out in in the world. The bar did really good with COVID safety precautions. Um, They reminded everybody to keep their masks on. They reminded everybody that if they get near me to uh, back the fuck up, basically. Don't get close to me. Not right now. No hugs right now. It was a great time, though. Everybody there was nice. I had a lot of anxiety about making new friends because that's who I am as a person. But... It actually, it was much better. It always is. It's not as bad as you think it's going to be. And then you just go make some friends and you be yourself and they like you. I should have listened to all the cartoons that I watched as a child, but I didn't take any advice like that. I also finally got another vaccine appointment for Sunday because I was turned away on Wednesday because I didn't have proof of residence, which apparently I don't need. Uh, I didn't read anywhere that I needed that, just an ID. I don't know why you would need proof of residency as if I was gonna drive across the country to get a vaccine here. When I'm eligible here, but I'm more eligible in North Carolina, where I was already coming from. So I'm not, it's McFricking bullshit is what it is. And it's very frustrating to go and like wait in line at a vaccine clinic, which was already really scary because I'm like, oh my God, people, vaccines, COVID. And then have them be like, oh no, 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 no. You don't have this piece of paper that we never told you that you needed and that you don't actually need but who are you to argue with me because i'm the one with the vaccine so fuck that it's bullshit but at least i have mine for sunday at a nice cvs where i know they will treat me with care because that's cvs for you to add even more wildness to my week apparently chloe kardashian produced a true crime documentary style i'll call it series on hulu called twisted love You can probably tell what it's about from that. It's like killer couples kind of deal. Love driving people to murder. 
as I was sitting there shook, scrolling through Chloe's show, which I'll call it, she doesn't show up on the show at all. She's just a producer, apparently. I saw the names Holly Harvey and Sandra Ketchum, which have been on a list of mine for a while. I knew that there was something to do with they were in a relationship, young lesbian girls from the country, a sort of patricide, I think it was. Somebody killed somebody's parents. But it was vague memories until I saw this episode. And it all came rushing back to me, and it is a wild story, and I can't believe I haven't, like, gone through with telling this yet. And as I was researching, I found that my friend CJ over at Beyond the Rainbow podcast had covered this case, actually. And she did a fantastic job on that over there at Beyond the Rainbow. And you guys definitely should check out her podcast. So yeah, strangely enough, this week I have... Chloe Kardashian to thank for sparking my passion for this case again. So thank you, Chloe. Sandra Ketchum was born April 19th, 1988. Sandy was a wide-eyed, happy baby from the beginning. She was giggly, didn't cry very much. She was, by the accounts on Chloe's documentary, very manageable as a baby. But unfortunately, that didn't mean that her mother was doing so. It wasn't long before Sandy's parents split up and her dad started dating. He got married a few times. It didn't work out. But throughout all of that, Sandy didn't really get to know her mom. She hadn't gotten to know her mom since she was a young child. And it was seen that her mother was unfit to be a parent. So that sort of left her with abandonment issues as it would. Around the time that Sandy's 12 years old, her dad meets Beth who stays in the picture for a much longer time, has a lot of love for Sandy, and is an all-around good mother to her, pretty much. It's very clear from when Sandy is a young kid that she's a tomboy all the way. She never takes to the feminine stuff that's given to her, and she shows an affinity for the masculine stuff. So they let her dress the way she wants to and express herself the way that they know she's comfortable doing. Sandy was definitely a rebel, And all of her friends said that she resented authority from a very young age. It didn't take her long to be like, fuck your rules. I am not following them. And that sort of led to when the cliques form in middle school, her being left out of a lot of them and only really accepted by the bad kid crowd. And having grown apart from her older group of friends, she was really blown away when she met Holly Harvey. Holly is charming and nice, and they are in eighth grade and outcasts, so they are a shoo-in for each other. To explain Holly's upbringing, I kind of have to go back a few generations because there's a bit of a cycle of abuse in the family. In the late 1960s, Carl and Sarah Collier are newlyweds that learn they are not able to have children, so they adopt two toddlers, Kevin and Carla. Immediately, the kids feel like outcasts because they're told, unless they follow the very strict rules of their mother, basically, Sarah, that they are disappointments. Their new daughter, Carla, happens to be a wild child at heart and a very stubborn one at that. So she's kind of always told that she's a disappointment and called very mean names by her own mother. Mind you, all under the guise of disappointing God. You have that going for you. There's no arguing that, because if somebody believes that hard, you can't really change their mind. So, naturally, when Carla is 17, she runs the fuck away from there and meets a boy. Now, this boy happens to be a full-on bad boy with a long rap sheet, and all of us with the affinity for bad boys know the story and know how easy it is to get sucked into that crazy bullshit, and she ends up 
with a baby while the man that she's seeing ends up being a deadbeat. And pretty much right after she has the baby, he is put away for outstanding warrants. That's not exactly the end of their relationship, but that's pretty much the end of any hope that Holly had at being raised by those two people. Carla was very wild. She was bouncing around with baby Holly, providing no stability. And in 2002, when Holly was younger than 10 years old, what's the math on that? I'm not sure. Maybe she was older than 10 years old. Terrible at math. Her mother was a drinker and a partier, and her and Holly got into a scuffle that ended with her choking Holly and screaming that she disgusts her. And Holly ran out of the room yelling, quote, Mama tried to choke me. Mama tried to kill me. And thankfully, CPS is called immediately, and Holly is placed permanently with her grandparents, Sarah Collier and Carl Collier. And the problem with that, obviously, is that Sarah is the one who raised Carla, and Carla ended up the way she ended up, so it's just a terrible cycle of abuse, like I said. So by the time Holly gets to middle school, she has already been through the ringer, and claims at the time wholeheartedly that she's not a lesbian, even said that at that time, lesbians disgusted her more than anything else, which is sad because she was getting that directly from her grandparents. And she sees Holly at school one day walking to the bus. And and Holly sees Sandra one day at school walking to the bus, and she's heard about Sandy through one of... um, one of Sandy's cousins. So she calls out her name, thinking that that could be her, and when she turns around, she says it was love at first sight. And in one of the letters that they sent to each other, Holly's quoted saying, You turned around and you looked like an angel. I didn't even know who you were, but I fell in love with you. I used to think lesbians were like the nastiest thing on earth, but yet, here I was, fallen head over hills for you in a matter of two seconds. That quote, is like direct from the letter, so it's like the letter U and W slash U for with you. It's very, very 2002 texting. Pretty much from that point on, those two are inseparable. You cannot get them to be apart, which is what inseparable means. Sandy invited Holly over often because it was pretty well known that Holly's grandparents were not going to let them have very much fun at that house. So she would have sleepovers with Sandy. And Sandy's parents loved Holly. They said that she was one of the sweetest kids that they'd ever met when they first met her, and that it looked like their daughters had just sparked up a great friendship. Very naive, straight people. For a short while, like I said, Beth is a sweetheart. She loves the girls. And then she kind of catches on to the fact that they're in a lesbian relationship. And she's not super stoked about that. But I don't necessarily think she's homophobic. I think it's more of the fact that she didn't like that they were lying to her and also didn't like that they were having sex in her house. Which is understandable because I know that my mom knew I was gay, but I sure as hell wasn't about to sleep with anybody in her house. So I respect that rule, Beth. I respect that. So Beth becomes stricter with the girls, which makes them resent her, naturally, as teenagers do. And Holly is already resenting her grandparents, which just leads to them acting out a lot and they're being orchard at school. So that's exacerbating the problem by a lot. And an abusive grandmother, Sarah, who at this point was going around town begging people to pray for her lesbian daughter who was in an evil lesbian relationship and needed salvation for her soul. So the damage was 
really piling up on these girls. And they were being called to every name in the book at school, being further pushed out and ostracized and marginalized. And it was just leading to them doing more and more self-destructive behavior. They started falling in with the wrong crowd. Beyond Pot started picking up amphetamines, pain pills, bad things that happen in the Southeast. And if it's shocking to you that kids this young are using things like that, then you've clearly never been to the Southeast. Sarah's common assault on Holly verbally was telling her that she was, quote, a slut, a whore, and that she would end up just like her mother. Very, very positive reinforcement there. Clearly things here are starting to get toxic between Sandy and Holly. They're using drugs together. They're sneaking out together. They begin cutting school, which is a little bit more understandable than the other things because school is where they're being tortured the most. Can't say I never did that, but I definitely didn't do the other things. And they were definitely headed down wrong paths. Their friends could see it and they tried their best, but it was a really huge snowball effect at that point, rolling to blow up in everybody's faces. Sandy started beating the shit out of anybody who would bully her or talk shit to her. So she was getting suspended on top of skipping school and things were just in a bad spot for both of the girls at that point. As they get a bit bolder, the girls decide that they're going to steal Sandy's parents' car and go joyriding through Fayetteville, which took a long time for Sandy's parents to catch on to. But when they finally did, they were very upset. And Holly's grandparents, Carl and Sarah, start fighting with Sandy's parents, Beth and her father, and they start blaming each other's kids for how wrong things are going, essentially. Both families decide that it's best to just ban the girls from seeing each other, and that's when we start seeing those infamous letters that they wrote to each other. I'm putting in my first big content warning right here for self-harm and suicidal ideation. So if you are sensitive to that, and if that's a trigger for you, I would recommend skipping ahead five minutes. After being isolated from Holly, Sandy started cutting herself with knives, razors, pencils, rocks, anything that she could get her hands on. And it was very noticeable to her parents, and nothing that they could do or say seemed to be helping Sandy. And Sandy was writing forlorn letters to Holly, like this one. I try so hard to really let you know how much I love you. What would I do if our love had no meaning? I want you to have faith that this will soon be over, but it's a price to pay, though. And I ask myself, is this life worth living? Very melodramatic letters, but also very indicative of there being mental health issues underlying all of this. After a few weeks of being away from each other, the girls make a break for it in Sandy's parents' car. They take some money, and they drive as far as they can with that until they get to the end of the road. They run out of gas and they find an abandoned car to sleep in. Four days later, they're found by the police in an abandoned car and taken home. Both parents are furious and the Colliers decide to charge Holly as a runaway, which makes them able to put a stipulation on the probation from that, which keeps her legally away from Sandy, giving the Colliers the ability to call the police if Sandy and her are ever together. And obviously this pisses Holly off immensely. Sandy's parents eventually allow her to go outside and hang with friends in their apartment complex, and that leads to her coming home and collapsing on the floor, having overdosed on pain pills. And after the episode with her hurting herself, and now this, they took her to therapy, and the therapist said that the problem might be that she's never seen her mom, or at least hasn't seen her in a long time. 
which in my opinion is terrible advice. So they send her to go live with her mother at Sandy's therapist advice. And that turns out to be a huge mistake. Sandy's mom lets her do whatever she wants to and even starts taking Sandy to see Holly, even though that was the one rule she was given from Sandy's dad. Do not let them see each other. This mom was not good. On the evening of August 1st, 2004, Sandy sneaks over to Holly's house after her grandparents go to bed, and she's got a 50 bag of weed laced with crack and cigarettes and music, and she is ready to party the night away. Holly and Sandy are having sex, listening to music, doing the drugs that they brought, and smoking cigarettes, trying to be quiet and not get caught by Holly's grandparents. Eventually, they run out of pot, and Sandy announces that she wants more, and Holly reminds her that they don't have any way of communicating with the dealers in the town. So Sandy suggests that they steal... And according to their testimonies, their conversation goes like this. Sandy suggests we should take their truck, referring to the Collier's blue Chevy Silverado. Holly replies, we'd have to kill them to do that. And Sandy suggests we should just hit them with the lamp, pointing to a seashell lamp that Holly had in her room. Holly suggests that that might just make them pass out. And that's when Sandy said, go get a knife. Holly does just that. Sandy takes it and starts practicing violently stabbing Holly's mattress. Mind you, these girls are high on crack at this point, and they are 15 years old. Which leads me to believe that their systems don't handle crack very well. Not that an older person could handle crack very well. I'm getting off the rails here. Eventually, to get the grandparents to come downstairs, Holly starts smoking weed in the house. And that does exactly what they want it to. And within a few seconds, Holly's grandmother, Sarah, is downstairs and knocking at her bedroom door. Holly opens the door with a knife behind her back, and her grandma complains about the smoke and the noise. And she doesn't see Sandy at this point because Sandy's hiding. She tells Holly that she's going to be just like her mother, and then she turns to leave. And that's when Holly plunges the knife into her grandmother's back in between her ribs and puncturing her right lung. Her grandmother obviously screams out in pain at this point and turns around and pins Holly to the bed. And Carl runs downstairs because he hears the screams at this point. So Holly starts to panic and she's yelling at Sandy to help her, which Sandy does. She throws Sarah off of Holly, giving Holly the opportunity to get up and run after her grandfather, who had since left the room after seeing the chaos and gone upstairs to call 911. When she gets upstairs, she notices that her grandfather has the phone in one hand and a knife in the other one. So Holly lunges at him, takes the knife, and starts going crazy on her grandfather. She loses her mind and stabs him. She describes the blood from her grandfather hitting her like somebody pouring a bucket of hot water on her. The audio's insane. If you don't like it, again, skip ahead. But I needed to add just a small clip. So listen to this wild confession. I grabbed the knife and I thought he was going to stab me. But I took the knife from my grandpa and I closed my eyes and I just started stabbing my grandpa real fast. Then the last time I stabbed my grandpa, a lot of blood came on me. A lot of blood came on you. Like, like somebody just poured a big old bucket of hot water on me. 
It's fucking crazy. It's insane. You can tell that these girls were clearly, literally out of their minds. It's a little hard to tell, but I assume that Sandy is the one who murders Sarah. It's a little blurry. It's hard to tell because the timeline that I'm understanding is that Holly was upstairs at that point, but it could also be that Holly came back downstairs to finish her grandmother, basically. And at that point, she takes money, grabs the car keys, puts a bunch of jewelry into a bag, and her and Sandy head to the truck. In their confessions, the girls talk about how they were so slick with blood that they couldn't get the car started and had to actually hold each other's hands to be able to even drive the truck. So covered in blood and chain-smoking Newports, Holly and Sandy head to Sandy's friend's house. And when they get there, the friend is obviously questioning why they're covered in blood, and Sandy tells her that they got jumped and that they needed a towel. And while they're cleaning themselves off, the friend notices that Holly has written on her arm the words kill, keys, money, jewelry. I guess they were so fucked up on drugs that they couldn't get their plan of killing their grandparents and stealing the car straight, so she had to write it down on her arm. Which shows you just how young and naive and out of their minds these girls were at that point. That is fucking crazy. The friend then asks what really happened, and that's when Holly holds up the knife still covered in blood and says, we killed my grandparents. The friend is super freaked out and is just like, okay, you guys go do what you gotta do, and she runs inside and calls 911. That's a good friend. The frantic call leads police to the grandparents' home on Plantation Drive in Fayetteville, Georgia, where they find the house covered in blood. It is all over the walls. There are literal pools of it on the floor, in the kitchen, in her bedroom, at the bottom of the stairs where her grandmother was. It's covering cabinets, doorknobs, windows. The blood is just everywhere. It almost looks like the girls were just playing in it. Every cop there says it was the most gruesome crime scene they'd ever seen. And this time, I believe them. Sarah is found with a hole, basically, where her heart was and stab wounds covering the rest of her body. And Carl is found just absolutely covered in stab wounds, most of them centered right on his face. Uh, the killing wound being one severing his artery here. And I guess that was the wound that Holly was referring to when she said blood spilled on her like a bucket of hot water. Detectives didn't have to work very hard to figure out where the girls were going because there was pictures plastered to Holly's vanity mirror of her and Sandy and her and her grandparents at the beach at Tybee Island in Georgia. So police had a hunch that that's where they could so police had a hunch that that's where they were going, and they were very correct about that. The girls drove the car to empty, basically, with what money they were able to take, and ended up at Tybee Island, parking the car basically right on the ocean on E. And they see a boy walking by who looks around their age, so they ask to bum a cigarette from him and start shooting the shit with him, telling him that they're runaways, that they didn't kill anybody, and that they didn't have a place to crash for the night. So he's thinking, what the hell? I'm at the beach having some fun. Sure, you can crash on the floor. Having found those pictures, police had already sent a shit ton of police and detectives and everybody else down to Tybee Island and notified everyone to be looking for those girls. So there was literally law enforcement in the street hunting for Holly and Sandy. The next morning, the boy who invited the girls to stay with him is actually out on his balcony at this little vacation rental when he sees cops walking around with guns hunting, 
and asks what the hell is going on. And the cops tell him that they're looking for two girls about his age. Has he seen him? And he's like, oh, shit. Yeah, they're in here. The cops run inside and arrest both Holly and Sandy. And allegedly, Holly went for her knife in her pocket when the detective arrested her. And he says that he had, like, a really dramatic catchphrase line that he said at that point. So I don't really believe that story. I think he just wanted to sound really cool. Which, like, go for it, dude. Whatever. You did a good job. Like I said, the girls both confess. Sandy actually ends up testifying against Holly because Holly was the person who kind of suggested killing her grandparents. And definitely was the person who wanted to kill them more. And was the person who actually did the stabbing. So she got in a lot of trouble. Both girls are sentenced to multiple life sentences in separate prisons hundreds of miles away from each other. They promise to wait as long as it'll take to be together in the end when they get out of prison, if they ever get out of prison, which both of them will be up for parole in 2024. But as of today, they are both still in prison. Sandy actually has a few dating profiles and she's trying to get back out there, which tells me that maybe she's working on getting out. And Holly has been transferred a few times for court hearings and things. So I'm not sure what's going on with her, but that did supply us with some up-to-date pictures of them. Sandy's stepmom says though, ironically, that Holly and Sandy don't talk anymore. And that Sandy specifically doesn't talk about Holly anymore. So I do not think that they're going to wait for each other as long as it'll take. I don't think that's happening anymore. But in most of Holly's mugshots, she is smiling and looking very happy. Besides the ones where she's arrested or in the bulletproof vest at trial because so many people threatened to kill her. She looks like she feels free, finally, from an abusive situation. And this whole story is just very fucked up. Obviously, murder is... Like, 10 times out of 10, never the answer. But it's hard not to feel some sort of pity for Holly because of all the shit that she went through, all the shit that her mom was put through. It's sort of like a ticking time bomb that everybody should have seen coming, at least. And that's the story of Holly Harvey and Sandra Ketchum. It is a fucking roller coaster ride. The episode of Twisted Lovers, or whatever I said it was called in the beginning, really made me feel bad for... Sandy's friends and Holly's friends, but they were just not interviewed as often. But Sandy's friends specifically showed a picture at the end of Sandy before she had gotten into the drugs and the crime and the self-destructive behavior and after. And unfortunately, that friend blames Holly, but, you know, when it's a loved one in the situation, it's hard not to, but everybody is an individual at the end of the day. But you can see the huge transformation, and it is very sad and heartbreaking, and you can tell that this girl, Sandy's friend, has seen it a lot with other friends from school. I know I have, even from my school in North Carolina. Heartbreaking. And as always, on that depressing note, it's time to transform this to a woman. That's the finished look for this week. I know I didn't put anything on below my neck, but, you know, let's be real. You can't see anything down there. And this is tie-dye, and it matches my wig, and I couldn't help but keep it on because I think this is a look. And if you disagree, feel free to read me in the comments. Like you always do. Yeah, I have a gig tonight. I'm excited about that. And I'm going to bat, 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 go bat, go bat, bat in this face. First time one of these faces is actually going to get to go out in, in real life. I mean, not like the first time ever, but first time filming a show and then doing a show. You know what I'm saying? I think it's cute. I hope you guys enjoyed this week's crazy fucking story. It was wild. I know. I'm still shook about this case. I still think about it sometimes. And I'm like, hmm, wow. Have a beautiful week. But know that I still love you. And then I'll see you next week. Probably. Mwah.